the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now, back to Lifeline. We are back. Two lines open, one 329 If you want to chime in on our topic or produce introduce something that might be equally as interesting, two lines open, one 329 Thank you, Ellen, for that question. I'm sure we will be in the midst of and the melee of that at some point in the near future as the nations continue to develop uh, positions of pro and con towards uh, this kind of favoritism that's happening uh, with with, uh, with Israel. Uh, and, and even among the Jewish people, there is a lot of dissent and opposition. So do not believe that it's even monolithic amongst them. You've got your Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem that's bewailing the fact that it's having to submit to a very secular and carnal uh, uh, government that that is imposing uh, secular concepts that really does not observe Torah um, uh, accurately. And the Orthodox Jews is really hoping that an intercession on the part of whom they believe Messiah is will come and kind of end this 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 conflict that's happening in Jerusalem. And there's a lot going on over there that we cannot know because our media is not, uh, not really open to explaining uh, the tons of trouble that's existing with regards to the Palestinians and the Jews and other people as well. Uh, suffice it to say, as I said earlier, that when you really kind of peer through what we are advocating, it's a form of apartheid. And that apartheid concept is really raising its ugly head in so many different categories and has for the last two, 300 years, ever since America and Europe has had the scepter of the gospel and has been kind of given uh, an opportunity to lead the world in, um, in evangelism and missions work only to do it with such, you know, horrible uh, ethical and moral compromise relative to uh, its history that it, it follows that where we are today is kind of a very secular, culturally compromised gospel that that basically is elitist in nature. And, and, and therefore, the grid of interpreting the Bible is often uh, out of a overrealized triumphalism that that basically is willing to compromise clear and explicit uh, statements in the New Testament as to what constitutes the real Israel of God and true Jews and and the uh, and the unity of the body and the person of Christ and the cessation and ending of that old covenant and the danger of resurrecting it again, according to the Hebrew writer. And Paul said in Second Thessalonians chapter two, if in fact we do have a temple, that the Antichrist is going to emerge up out of that temple. So a uh, lot of problems in my opinion, with the notion that somehow we can advocate the reinstitution of the old covenant uh, without utterly, utterly, utterly despising the glory and transcendent nature of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the, in the gospel of, uh, of what we call the new covenant. Let me go to line number two right now and talk with uh, Dan and Sonoma. Dan, are you there? Yes, uh, it was called to my attention last Tuesday. Yes. 
uh, by an experience I had that offense can be unconscious. And uh, what I mean is if someone's speaking to you in angry terms, uh, I can fail to recognize that that is a person that I should bless because I didn't realize that they anger was kind of a manifestation of being cursed. So, you know, the temptation is there to respond in kind when somebody's angry. Sure. And uh, it sort of relates to some of the other topics you're talking about tonight. Uh, in what way? Well, for example, uh, if you back up, rewind to pretty much the beginning of the show, somebody mentioned something about offense, and then when you were trying to untangle the uh, eschatological discussion that you just had, people might not be willing to listen because they're offended to even check it out and find out what you mean. True, So, uh, True. you know, when people are angry, it's just harder to listen. Yep. And Jesus said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. And I was not ready to do that when I had this experience on Tuesday. I said, well, you know, this person's angry at me. I need to get away from them. I need to try to shut the discussion down. But I didn't realize that I could, you know, pause for a moment and ask God to bless this person. That's Uh, that's possible if we want to deal with the concept of blessing in a generic way. I'm not so sure that that is even the uh, intent of the Lord's expression in the Beatitude in the book of, in the in the book of Matthew chapter five and six, uh, as he is giving the um you know, the Sermon on the Mount series. I don't know if 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 to bless someone means to um, alter uh, in a nanosecond your uh, natural right for self preservation relative to maybe uh, an aggressive tone or a derogatory statement or a pejorative uh, you know expletive and if it's not that if it wasn't that uh, irate just uh just a kind of um uh, you know, angry continents are tone that needs to first be adjusted and recognized. And then, Dan, I, I would say that blessing can come in many forms. For instance, I could bless someone uh, who is actually operating out of a kind of narrow minded tunnel vision hostility towards something that I'm saying by responding to them calmly and letting them know what the appropriate truth is relative to maybe they're misguided because they were emotionally offended by what I said, uh, what the appropriate truth is to the topic that we're addressing. I think that rational people would feel that they are much more blessed uh, if, in fact, you and I can help them avoid uh, or we can help dissipate, as the proverb says, uh, a, 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 a man of discretion is able to overpass a transgression. It is his glory to do so. If I can, if I can help uh, assuage an individual's uh, anger or hostility towards me by a soft answer, turning away wrath, Proverbs fifteen one, then therein is the greater blessing. It's not a blessing for me to just say, Lord, bless them. I mean, you know, you can say that, but what does that mean? I mean, if that individual doesn't recognize that they are in the attempt of trying to correct you, engaging in an offense themselves, 
The idea of blessing is for them to come to an acknowledgement of their own offense, not just that somehow, um, you know, we just act counterintuitively and and just use the kind of rhetorical uh, rhetoric of of, uh, of of bless you. Well, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. I think that that can be a little bit shallow and it can be a, a form of faint praising. It is a tactic that basically can be condescending. If I'm not authentically wanting that individual who is at the moment offended by something that I said, if I am not authentically wanting them to be able to have clarity and an understanding of the real nature of what I meant by what I said, then I don't know if I'm blessing them, Dan. I don't I don't want them to just continue under the false notion that it's right for them to be offended because they didn't like for the fact that I said that I don't hold to a premillennial dispensational view and that the implications of that is horrible in terms of the once for all work of Christ on the cross. They can be mad and they can say, hey, that I don't know if I agree with you, not say, OK, I got that. But let's talk about it if you want to talk about it. But just to be mad, uh, that doesn't merit anything. But I would want to be able to do that in a fashion that might open up for a further development of the conversation that was initially offended simply because the topic was not something they agreed with. Secondly, you said you didn't even recognize that they were offended. You know, I I think I can elucidate that. I I like everything that you said. Uh Uh, If I elucidate it, I was walking on a sidewalk and this lady that I was approaching says, uh, don't hit me, my stuff is in. Uh, my stuff is here, and I, it wasn't clear to me whether whether the stuff in the sidewalk or whether it was just against the bushes. I, finally, when uh, this was somewhat explained to me, I asked her, do you prefer that I walk through the bushes, or do you want me to walk out in the street? Because if your stuff is in the sidewalk, I need to know if you're intending for me to walk in the bushes or walk out in the sidewalk. Right. But it, 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 it had already flared up where she was angry with me and I was angry back with her. And uh, the way that you said this just now to me is what I could have said if I had been in a better frame of mind. Right. I could have said to her, uh, let's clarify this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you intend for me to do? Right. Exactly. Because, see, we're do- we're dealing with double narratives and triple narratives when we're talking about saying something somebody to someone in an imperative form, but also with an urgent uh, tone that has with it no room for compromise. I'm setting you up to have to now come back in kind in order to preserve yourself from an outcome that could be far more harmful for you than she would even recognize. Let's say that the the. Uh, um, the groceries or whatever her stuff was, was in the middle of the road. And the only option you had without offending her by walking through the bushes is to walk out in the street. And there are cars coming in the street. So I'm not going to I'm not submitting to her harsh and rash and narrow minded imperative uh, just because she felt like what I'm doing in my walking past her is, is going to create an offense. Now, I might have to speak in urgency back to her as you probably did and say, hey, lady, look. You're giving me two options, but in reality, there's only one option for me, for me to be safe, and that's for me to go through the bushes. And as much as this might trouble you, I'm going to take this route and believe that your goods won't be harmed, neither will my body be harmed. Um, 
And, and that's reasoning with someone in the heat of a moment of which that individual is not taking into consideration options relative to your welfare as well. And we're going to meet those situations all the time. I tell you, man, this stuff comes up all the time. These kind of irrational, uh, uh, impromptu statements that don't have options uh, for dealing with something in a better way. And uh, when people don't want to acquiesce, don't want you to acquiesce to what they want, then all of a sudden, you know, you you got a you got a head on fight with you right there. I get what you're saying, and I get the person that was telling you that um, they were uh, offended by what you said, but uh, we don't always have the room for being able to explain ourselves in a kind of objective and uh, careful way that would immediately. Uh, dissipate the urgency that they felt that they needed to actually impose upon you, even if it meant you're hurt. We can't always get around it. When you walk away, you can say, Lord, have mercy on her. You know, help her to understand that her irrational fears were actually putting me in danger when there was no danger there whatsoever. I had no intention of devastating her goods. Even if I do walk through the bushes, which would be difficult for me as well to walk through the bushes, uh, I'd probably jump over the groceries personally, uh, but I'm not going out into the street to get hit by a car over over groceries. That's uh you know, that's that's the that's the longitude latitude conflict that we often enter into with people and we're glad that we can keep it moving. Yeah, well thank you. It's a good discussion. I thought it was excellent. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, well I'm sure somebody will call in and be able to uh affirm or deny uh our dialogue. Thanks, Dan. I've got to take another break. Uh two lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine two nines open. I opened up the uh comment uh a while ago about whether or not you actually recognize and are affirming that there may be legitimate elements of the argument and uh now it's becoming almost a uh, a sacred cow uh, on the level of evolution, if you will, that global warming is a universal reality that should not even be examined or challenged or deconstructed or uh, cross-examined to see where the merits are versus the hype. Uh, I think it really does need to have the same kind of open, honest debate that premillennial dispensationalism, which is being bought lock, stock and barrel, that system needs to be in an open, honest debate with high level scholars who have enough understanding of all the views and have a very healthy understanding of biblical exegesis as well as the gospel to be able to talk about the implications that are so clearly blatant in the premillennial dispensational view. Um, as would be the case with global warming as well. If we can demonstrate biblically that mankind's sin and disobedience and rebellion doth lead to and has led to uh, biblically, historically, times where the earth has been corrupted and evil has so permeated the world as a consequence of our scandalous behavior that God had to come in and clean up uh, and, 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 and restore it in order that we might perpetuate ourselves. And I think we have a conversation about global global warming on a gospel level. What say ye? Three lines open one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. Three lines open one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Love to hear from you. One triple eight 
3675329 if you want to chime in on what we talked about or you want to bring another subject to the table um in addition to um my concerns about premillennial dispensationalism uh, the apostle paul has laid out in clear new testament terms a very clear understanding of a transcendent view of the real jerusalem of which the premillennial dispensationalists never talk about as a, as a hermeneutical regulation or at least uh, parameters of understanding that apostolic doctrine has clearly laid out that the people of God, the children of Israel, the true Jew, the children of Abraham, the new Jerusalem has nothing to do with the Jerusalem that is in bondage with her children. That's exactly the way Paul laid it out in Galatians chapter 4. Here's what he said. Abraham had two sons, verse 22 of Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, he's referring to Isaac, and the other by a free woman, he's referring to um, Jacob, Isaac and Jacob. Yes, the one with the bondwoman here is Hagar. And the bondwoman's son is after the flesh. That is to say, Abraham and Hagar had uh, Ishmael, rather, uh, Ishmael after the flesh. And it was not a miracle. It was not part of God's promise. And yet here comes Isaac, born of Sarah as a child of promise. Verse 23. And then Paul does what a lot of uh, scholars deny is an essential hermeneutical tool for New Testament Christocentric theology. And that is he recognized that the birth of Ishmael and Isaac were an allegory of the two kinds of Jerusalems. One is fleshly and carnal and correspond to national Israel with its earthly covenants and earthly temporal uh, temple and land rights, which he says in verse 24, which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, that's the law, which genders to bondage, which is what the law does which is Hagar, and that's an oxymoronic outcome of interpretation because national Israel would not at all want to identify with Hagar, but Hagar is Egyptian. And what the New Testament clearly lays out is that the children of the flesh are just as much in captivity and bondage as Egyptians are spiritually and do not identify with Abraham's seed not having faith. That was true in Paul's day, and it's true today. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, corresponds to the Jerusalem that Paul is talking about in Israel, which is now in bondage with her children, meaning that it's still under the covenant curse of the Old Testament system to which they tenaciously, tenaciously hold to today, at least Orthodox Jews, not secular Jews. And he says, but Jerusalem, which is above. Now, what Jerusalem is Paul talking about? He's talking about the Jerusalem that nobody wants to talk about today, particularly those who are advocating a dispensational view, a horizontal, earthly, temporal view of Israel. When you do that, you are playing switch and bait with the scriptures. You are denying the authority of apostolic doctrine, which frames the nature of a passe covenant versus a new covenant that takes much of the nomenclature and terminology of the old covenant and is able to recognize its fulfillment in the person of Jesus and in the body of Christ by very meticulous 
doctrinal development in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians by the Apostle Paul. And when we follow that tenor and framework of interpretation all the way through, we even see it in the book of Revelation. And I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God, Revelation 21, having the glory of God in Christ as its adornment as a bride. And there's only one bride. It's not two brides. National Israel is not the bride of Jesus. Gentiles are not the bride of Jesus. The church is the bride of Jesus, and the church is made of of Jews and Gentiles. That's why Paul said we give no offense to the Jew. He's not saved. We give no offense to the Gentile. He's not saved, nor to the church of God, which is saved, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. What that system does is it continues to reintroduce the concept of division and separation and the reinstitution of law and works and legalism, the reinstitution of blood sacrifices. Everything about that system to me just smacks of the Antichrist system relative to the beauty, the splendor, the exclusivity, the superiority, the excellence of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul said in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that he will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God, most of your uh, contemporary uh, theologians and pastors who buy into the assumption of a premillennial dispensational system look at that as Paul prophesying the end times Because they do believe that Jerusalem will have another temple and have another priesthood and have another sacrifice and a red heifer for the offering of a legitimate atonement. Which once again would simply smack of a total and complete denial of everything gospel in terms of the person and work of Christ. And for the life of me, I don't know how the church would buy into a system that would set itself up over against Jesus like that, except that it be blind. You got to just abandon like 70, 80 percent of Pauline theology around understanding the realization of what in the Old Testament was typical and representative of a reality that's in the new. I'm a true Jew. And so are you if you're in Christ. And Paul made it very clear. He is not a Jew who is one of the flesh. On the 7,000 that will not bow the knee as a uh, model and representation of God having a preservation of, 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 of Jewish people who will come to know Jesus in Romans 11 is not about the whole nation coming to know Jesus, but an election in Israel who will come to hear the gospel and really believe the gospel. Romans 11 is not real estate that allows us to take on a wholesale restoration of the land of Palestine and reinstitute Jews there and resurrect the law covenant. That's just absolutely insane. Let me go to line three and talk with Nelson. Nelson, are you there? Yes, sir. Um, good news. On Friday, I start working Monday through Friday, 8 to 4. So, awesome. Lord willing, I'll be there for at, at 6.30, right? Uh, well, you know, it starts at 7, but the doors will open at 5 o'clock, but, uh, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock. But, yeah, it starts at 7. You'll enjoy our brother Lance. He's a good speaker. I hope you can make it. Yeah, yeah, I should be able to make it. Um, you, you know, <laughs> it's so funny you said um, that type of theology we um, reject so much of Pauline's epistle because a uh, young lady on Facebook, I, w- I grew up in the same Pentecostal church, Church of God in Christ, with in Massachusetts. Right. She, oh, we were discussing on Facebook, she's into that whole um, 
every Sabbath day, yep. um, the Sabbath. Yep. The, the, she makes the meal and everything. And I was discussing all that with her, and she said she's no longer going to recommend any of Paul's teaching to people. It's, that's a logical outcome, and this is what I've been warning for decades. I really do think, Nelson, that the church, besides becoming lukewarm and cold to the reality of the gospel and therefore does not have that insignia of, of, of a passionate evangelism for Jesus, will collapse into a works religion um, as did Catholicism, because Catholicism is really what Paul was talking about, um, which usurped, if you will, that that whole system of Judaism that I call it neo-Judaism, Catholicism, and the evangelical church is going to collapse right into that system. It's going to fit very well in the end times of abandoning grace and returning again to works religion. Right. Um, you know, I, when I look at Judaism, I, I don't look at it as as works-related as Catholicism or Islam. I, th- I think there's more um, do you, you actually do good to people because um because God is good and um and because we've been persecuted so much over the years that we are not going to return evil to the world like they have done to us i I think I don't think there's you know there there's different strains of Judaism of course of course the ultra orthodox that that would be more of a legalistic thing. Um, I, I don't know. Am I making any sense? <laughs> yeah, you're making plenty of sense, and you're wrong. I love you, but you just <laughs> <laughs> logically speaking, you're wrong. Think about what you just said. I mean, uh, there's there there really is the only thing I can say about what you are stating, and I would agree with it. But it, it that that mentality and that sentimentality collapses into your secular atheist who just says, you know, I don't need Jesus to do good. I don't need God to do good. I don't need religion to do good. That's your secular Jew as well. I, I get what you're saying. They just do it because it would be better to do. But underlying everything that we do, is either a premise of grace or works. This is clear New Testament theology. And every human being is going to seek merit in what they do. So you take that individual who has stripped himself down in a Judaistic way from all of the, you know, uh, multiple laws of Torah and all of the ridiculous and absurd writings of uh, the Tamod and uh, the Halakha and many of the uh, writings of uh, of the Jewish fathers that would, you know, heap upon them so, so many ridiculous laws and just strip himself down to you know, basically what he feels would be good or right. Well, he's going to be operating out of a sliding scale that Solomon said in Proverbs, every man will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find, he will ultimately uh, be judged according to his works. And if his works are not found to be rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the ground and motive of him doing good, he's going to have to answer for his work ultimately being evil works. Now, the only distinction that I would agree with you on is that there are many Jews, just like there are many atheists, who will keep their lives as simple as do good to your neighbor. But that's not going to be good enough relative to the indictment of the whole world in Adam that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's just not. They're going to have to answer for their works in the day of judgment. And uh, so there you go. You get the last word before I let you go. Well, no, you you. You you made it so clear, and you know what? You know what? 
I, I've been meaning to do this. I'm going to start it today, not tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Every day I'm going to listen to Spurgeon sermons, a gospel worth dying for. Yeah. And, he, and, he, and this is his, this is the, the sermon that defines his ministry. Um, think about it, a gospel worth dying for. And he gets it from the scripture, um, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And he takes Joe Osteen to task in that um, sermon. He takes Rick Warren to task in that sermon. And everybody um, and I mean, everybody else that turns the gospel into a gospel of humanism and prosperity. Um, what I loved about Spurgeon, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I embrace almost everything Spurgeon, and some would argue, well, Spurgeon was a millennialist. He was not a premillennial dispensationalist. He was a millennialist. That's a big difference, and I'd be glad to talk to people about that as well. But one thing I loved about Spurgeon is he understood, which is what I have tried to build a legacy on in terms of gospel preaching for myself, that if you start down a path of diminishing Jesus Christ as the center and substance of all of your theology, you are inevitably going to slide into error and apostasy. And he warned the churches around him about every off-road into error because of a lack of absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ at the level that you're talking about, being willing to tell the world who Christ is and why they need him in spite of the consequences and outcome and impact. Conversely, Joel, I mean, uh, John Hagee telling the Jews that they don't need Jesus to be saved because they're chosen and uh, Christians are saved is an absolute abomination according to the word of God. They're do- he's doing exactly what the prophets of Jeremiah did which God warned, he he heals the people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is absolutely no peace whatsoever and is using untempered martyr to build a wall of security for them when they have no security at all. What he should have been saying to them was that the very Messiah that you rejected the Messiah that you rejected along with Pauline theology, along with the New Testament, which they continue to do, is going to be the thing that condemns them. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, and that won't be reversed except for this little window of time we call the final apostasy that must occur before Christ comes. And we already see some of that unraveling. We don't know if it's going to happen in our generation, but I see a gradual moving away from grace into uh, grace plus works, into works plus works, into legalism, into syncretism, into universalism. The abandoning of the offense of the gospel is the uh, telltale sign that's going on in our generation right now. Thank you for the call, my brother. I've got to take a break. All four lines are open if you want to take me to task. Love to talk about it. Uh, Ellen started this. So, Ellen, you you started this conversation, and we're going to continue to uh, be open for dialogue around it, notwithstanding the vast majority of people collapsing into this view. A lot of this has to do with how many Bibles are being sold by different publishers who print and promote this kind of stuff. But as I stated before, looking forward to the debate of legitimate giants who love Christ and have a sound handle on biblical exegesis, uh, a historic understanding of eschatology relative to the church fathers all the way up to the present day, and to have a lengthy debate, cross-examination of different texts of scripture that are being used to foster these notions. Deal with the implications of your views. Deal with the outcome of your views and see if they are faithful to the one who actually has established the church. Looking forward to that debate. 
All the lines are open. one 367 We're going to pay some bills, and then we'll come back with yours truly on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right. We have 15 minutes. A long enough time for you to call if you want to chat with me. one 367 If anything that we've been talking about or as I have been kind of chipping away at some of my concerns about premillennial dispensational theology, you are welcome to call, engage me, uh, share with me your views. one 367 Or if you want to sneak in a question, <clears throat> all the lines are open and we can take it to the top of the hour. Got a lot of room to do that. Um, again, as I have been working through the Bible for now almost 40 years personally, uh, one of the things that I come to understand is that the Old Testament language, while it had a number of promises that were given to national Israel, that Old Testament language is couched in a kind of um, chronology and covenant framework that does not uh, lend itself to any kind of contemporary explicit terminology. That is to say, God talks to Israel about the uh, Babylonian captivity and and then recovering from the Babylonian captivity for those who uh, endure the 70 years uh, because of his purpose to bring them back to the land. And in bringing them back to the land, God gives them in the book of Zechariah and the the book of Haggai and the book of Habakkuk and the book of Isaiah as as well. All of these grandiose pictures of the blessing of restoring them to the land and then opening the doors, if you will, for Gentile inclusion. And this is largely where Paul, where Paul in the New Testament is able to fabricate an understanding of the unity between Jew and Gentile in the person of Christ. Now, quite frankly, what a Jewish mind, unregenerate and not born again, thus to comprehend that the Bible is about Jesus and not about the Jew. The Jewish mind looks at Isaiah, particularly starting again from around Isaiah 49 and goes all the way to Isaiah 66 asserting that the interpretation of the Lord's servant, Jehovah's servant, is Israel and not Jesus. And I can see that when you put that framework on the book of Isaiah, blinded to the supremacy of Christ and the beauty and splendor of Christ, that, yeah, Israel can take on the notion that it's the suffering servant, that it is the suffering savior. That it is the suffering mediator, and and certainly they use that terminology. They fundamentally will assert that God uses them as the mediating priest, the mediating prophet, the mediating people of God. And how tragic that interpretation is relative to the fact that the Jews don't hold any weight upon New Testament testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all the scripture. And so the assumption that anything in the New Testament is invalid so that we cannot uh, take seriously the fact that Jesus said in John 5, 39, you are searching the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me, not of the Jewish people. 
You read Isaiah 60. Arise, for your light shall shine, and the Gentiles shall be drawn unto you. And national Israel is ready to own that because of the language that is temple-centered there. Then you read Isaiah chapter 66, which is a fascinating closing chapter. By the way, you know, it it corresponds to the fact that we got 66 books in the canon. And in Isaiah chapter 66, this is how it closes out. And it shall come to pass, verse 23, from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh to come wor- shall come worship before me, saith the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall the fire be quenched, and sh- they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. But what is being stated in the book of Isaiah chapter 66, but a return to the covenant, a return to the temple, a return to Jerusalem, a return to law keeping, a return to Sabbath days. Well, if you don't allow the Old Testament to be regulated by the New Testament, then you and I are going to naturally collapse back into Old Testament promises, not knowing how the New Testament has said those things were a shadow of good things to come. But the substance and reality and fulfillment in them, according to Colossians 2, is in Jesus Christ. And when we don't understand how to harmonize the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in light of God's eternal covenant of redemption, And this is where much of evangelical Christianity is in trouble. It does not have a healthy and sound biblical theology that runs concurrently from the old to the new, demonstrating the symmetry that the New Testament explains to us was weaving all the way through the Old Testament in the first place. In other words, the Old Testament never did paint a picture of the Hebrew people or the Jewish people being exclusively genetically of the bloodline of Abraham. It has always been an admixture of Jew and Gentile. You see that even in the genealogy of Jesus, but it becomes more expanded in the New Testament. And again, as I said earlier, the language of the New Testament with Jesus, who talked about an Israelite indeed, in whom has there is no guile, or the Apostle Paul, who lays it out in Romans 2. Who is a true Jew except he whose circumcision is of the heart and spirit, not of the flesh? Those are radical statements that are absolute in nature. No equivocation. And that if you be Abraham's seed, then are you children of the promises. But if you don't be Christ, if you're not in Jesus Christ, then you're you may be adopting a paradigm where you are owning the fleshly seed of national Israel, which is what a lot of of the black Hebrew Israelites do. A lot of the neo Jewish uh, people do who are operating out of a historical framework that is grounded on a horizontal level with regards to land rights and and property and going back to Israel and taking over. And, And to do that is to miss the superiority of the spiritual kingdom of God that has its reality in Jesus as the high priest, Jesus as the king, Jesus as the greater David, Jesus as the branch. And the body of believers being Jew and Gentile, being the children of Abraham. And Abraham, by the way, is heir of the world, Kazmu, Romans chapter 4, verse 13, not just of Palestine. In fact, the Israelites don't own Palestine. Palestine is not owned by Israel. 
God owns Palestine. He said it very clearly in Leviticus. I own the land. The land is mine and you are simply tenants here. And this is why from time to time, Israel has been removed over and over and over again from the land. And what we have to really think through is what happened in 1948. When uh, the United Nations, along with America, began to uh, make way to bring uh, Jews back to Palestine and all of the problems and troubles that they've had since. Humanity has a long legacy, ladies and gentlemen, of trying to produce and affect prophecy to its own end. Self-fulfilling prophecy is not hard to do. God in his sovereignty allows it to happen in his inscrutable, his inscrutable judgment when he gives us over to our own will. But it ends up never, ever working out according to God's glory. It always ends up disastrous. And I got a feeling that what's taking place in our world today is at the cost of the gospel. Now, you read Isaiah 66 and then you go to Revelation 21 where it talks about New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. and There's no temple. For God himself is the temple. The light is God. And the glory is Christ. And the, the life is the spirit of God taking on that neo-Edenic imagery of the, the river pouring out from the throne and watering the trees of life on either side, giving us again that allegory and imagery of a restoration of Eden and then the perfection of that restored Eden in the new man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam and the people of God in him. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. This language gives greater harmony and consistency and coherence to the New Testament than the notion of two covenants and two peoples of God. Again, if you're thinking about uh, the tribulation period and the notion of an antichrist rising up, and most premillennial dispensationalists will say that they will come up out of the Middle East, come up out of the Palestinian area. Why? Because they're using a biblical language that really has its culmination in the person of Christ. And, and once again, reinterpreting it as having been centered in the nation of Israel. And then the warning is given that he shall rise up in the temple of God showing himself to be God and opposing everything that exalts itself uh, against him. And, uh, and then God says, all of this is the strong delusion that Isaiah 66 talks about, that he shall give, them, give people over to believe a lie because they did not have a love for the truth, but they had a love for, uh, for unrighteousness. So he gave them over to a working of delusion. And I, I do wonder in my present generation, in our church age, are we gradually and incrementally being given over to a strong delusion as we collapse under this doctrine and that doctrine of failure of believing the infallibility and errancy of the word of God, a failure of recognizing the authority of scripture relative to church government, a failure of comprehending the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the finality of the cross work of Christ, a failure to comprehend the true gospel of grace alone apart from works, a failure to comprehend the exclusivity of Christianity. Christian evangelism having no part with any kind of uh, secular worldview as some kind of uh, component to getting the gospel out. Many of your larger denominations that are going liberal, they have a kingdom theory that's inclusive of all kinds of pagan religions called syncretism again. The Catholic Church holds to those tenets. All roads lead to Rome. Now, if all roads lead to Rome and Rome has taken on a neo-Jewish framework with high priest and priest and bishops 
in the sense in which they're taking over the Aaronic priesthood, as they did, denying the finished work of Christ and embracing salvation by works. As you know, the sacrifice continues with that system and men and women in that system are obliged to uh, believe that they merit salvation by the sacraments of the church. Well, that's nothing more uh, than Judaism in a new garb. Christian terminology. And and if we are undiscerning, ladies and gentlemen, about this hazardous distinction between the doctrines of grace and the exclusivity of faith and, and the glory of God and, and, and the scriptures and, 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 and grace alone through Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God, by the scriptures alone. If you and I don't understand that Protestant theology recognized the Antichrist system in the Catholic Church for which it broke away, then we're headed right back there again in a marvelous but subtle and incremental way as we start merging. Now, Catholicism is reemerging with the Greek Orthodox Church. They are finding ways to come together because the fundamental premise of their system is works too. They, they plainly say it. Now, all they're doing is waiting for the evangelicals to come back home. That's what they say. Come on back home, evangelicals. You can't hang out there with the Bible alone and Jesus alone and faith alone and grace alone forever. You eventually got to come back to Papa. That's what they say. And I believe a premillennial dispensational system having its fundamental roots in a Darby, uh, a, a, a Darby system as well as a Schofield system, which needs to be investigated as well as to how they founded this system of doctrine that didn't have any existence beyond 100 years ago. This is a, a Johnny-come-lately system, ladies and gentlemen, and no one's really talking about the origin of this complex premillennial, dispensational, mid-trip, post-trip, pre-trip system that these two men espoused and brought into America and were able to successfully run it through the publishing uh, houses when they printed Bibles. It's never, ever really been deconstructed and argued on a universal level. It must be done. I graciously warn the Church of the Living God not to buy into any kind of eschatological system that undoes what Christ did to establish and secure our salvation all by himself, by grace alone, to adopt and return to the weak and beggarly elements of the old Jewish system. I encourage you and warn you, do not return to that system or else you fall under the same warning of Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. If we willfully sin after that, we have received a knowledge of the truth of the once for all sacrifice for all sin and the once for all high priest and king and prophet Jesus Christ. There remains no sacrifice for sin, but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation that shall be poured out upon all adversaries of the gospel. Until next time, God bless you. Think this through.
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.